Welcome to Into the West, the Middle-Earth SBG podcast where we discuss and break down the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles, and with me today are Richard, Ian, Alexander, and a very special guest, Matt Zwick. Matt is joining us from all the way over in Chicago, USA. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing excellent. Good to see you guys. So today, Matt will be joining us to discuss Radagast the Brown. And in our open topic, we'll be discussing army bonuses and alliances. Now, just a few questions to kick off the podcast for Matt. Now, Matt, you're all the way over in Chicago, and you're part of the Chicago Hobbit League. Could you tell us a little bit about your community and what the Middle Earth scene is like over there? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I got back into SBG around 2013, and I basically created the league because the old group who used to play kind of gave up on it with uh, the lack of GW support and just the fact that the game was kind of dying down. Um, I didn't want it to die here, so I kept pushing, and it was pretty slow for a while in the dark days, you know, but um, now um, we have... A few dozen people who come from time to time I call regulars, and uh, it's still growing, so that's good. A lot, of, a lot of cool people, a lot of regulars. We have a small group, but a consistent small group. So, And your group is known for uh, the tournament Adepticon, uh, which you, you guys host uh, each year, right? Did you want to tell us a little bit about that event? I've been to Adepticon twice so far, and uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty epic event from my experience. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was lucky enough to attend once with the old group, and through that I met a guy who is uh, currently our liaison to Adepticon, basically. And working with him, I built the tournament back up there. At this point, we've been successful enough year after year to be given the leeway to host four days' worth of events. Um, You'll catch us there on Wednesday nights for some casual games if you guys show up, um, anybody listening, but... We have games Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, basically all day. Um, we have, of course, the big GT, which is going to span on Saturday and Sunday, hopefully at Adepticon in 2022, which is now next year. And, of course, we will have a doubles tournament this time, which is going to be excellent. A lot of people have been waiting for that. Um, and then we do kind of a fluctuating couple other events, maybe a narrative. Um, a lot of people like the Battle Companies event we hosted last time, so we're looking to do that again. And then we'll throw something else in there. So pretty much four to five events and four full days of gaming. It's pretty busy, but pretty good, you know, having four full days of access. That's that's pretty cool. Um, so the, for the battle companies, is that like a one day kind of thing? So you know what? The man, um, the man is named Jamie, the liaison from the old group, and he really liked it. And um, I forgot exactly who helped him host it the most, but I was the most hands-off on battle companies out of anything. But it is a one-day event. From what I remember, what they did is everybody started with their battle company. They played three games, and you know, knowing the game uh, minimalistically, I know that they gave them their upgrades from game to game. So whatever they achieved the first game, they would get the next game. And I don't remember what the prizes were for exactly, but there was like I think like top model for something like one model who um, leveled up the most or whatever and uh, stuff like that. But it is I think a three-game one-day event they hosted in the evening. I think on a Thursday or something last time. I seem to remember it was like five or six games. Actually, was it five or there, six? There were all okay. like really short. 45, Maybe they. But all right, yeah. I, I, I didn't play in it, but 
I, yeah. I was talking to a couple of people who were playing, but it okay, seemed yeah. like a lot of fun. Yeah. Maybe they were. Th- maybe I'm thinking they were throwing around three games for the next one, but pro- that's probably too short then. So we'll see. Yeah, because with bow companies, you need like time to level up. Yeah, for sure. Lots of games. Um, yeah, Adepticon is always a lot of fun. It's one of the biggest events in North America, and you meet lots of people, and <clears throat> and it's got a great like vendor hall and stuff like that. It's my favorite time of the year for uh, tabletop gaming. That's for sure. Yeah, hopefully we'll get that in 2022. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So a few questions about you. Just I know you've been in playing the game for uh, the last few editions at least. When? <clears throat> how did you get into the hobby and and when did you uh, start? Did you start like back when the movies were in theaters? So yeah, when I was a kid, um, I forgot exactly the age when I first saw them, but they had a games workshop in one of the malls I went to frequently. And, you know, just seeing the uh, display rack painted cases and the models out there back when it was more popular, I would go by, you know, obviously I had no income as a kid, but I'd, I'd want it. I would bought a little bit here and there. I was mainly like a starter set casual back then, you know, Rohan, Minas Tirith, Mordor, all that. Um, and that's basically when I got onto it. But I ended up, uh, you know, leaving home and going to the military, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I came back in 2013 and uh, I got back into it, you know, having being an adult, having my own income. And that's when I really got back into it, and I would say started the, my competitive career um, playing this game. That's like around the time when the Hobbit edition came out, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where I started. So what are a couple of your favorite factions and, and why? Well, Charles knows this, but um, the last few years I played a lot of Lake Town Mirkwood in combination. I do love the mix. I just love the play style. I love a few of the heroes. Um, I'm a type of person who loves more conflicted characters. I like Thorn. I like Thrandall. I like Bard because he's just pretty normal in the movie. So that's what kind of attracted me to it. Not pristine, always perfect type of characters. So that's what got me into the army and the playstyle. I'd like to say Hobbits, but it's a little bit rough in the new edition. I've been trying to work my way around to getting to them and getting better with them. But I'd say those are probably the top three right now that I like to mix and match. Uh, just preface this a bit. I know we've we've had a lot of talks about doing like weird alliances in the past, so I'm <laughs> I'm guessing just for uh, the listeners that that uh, we would say you're very much into doing tons of crazy alliances rather than running everything uh, like pure factions. Yeah, or, or... <laughs> absolutely. Um, I don't quite ally as uh, efficiently as probably Richard or Charles do when I see them come up with some lists. But I definitely like to mix and match. It's it's difficult for me to run pure lists, I'll be honest, um, just because I want more. I want more flavor, you know? Um, I think I ran pure Rohan and pure Goblin Town this year, and it was fun. But uh, most of my armies, I like to have at least two factions in them. No, man. I'm totally with you. Like, playing a pure army is just like eating toast with, like, no butter. <laughs> I want to go to the buffet when I play SPG <laughs> every time. <laughs> That's a nice sneak peek to our open topic today. But uh, the first, first we'll be covering uh, the profile of the episode, which is Radagast Brown. And then um, after we cover the profile, we'll be going through two of uh, Matt's army lists. You can find both of these lists on our Facebook page. If you're not on our Facebook page yet, it's just Into the West podcast, and you should be able to find a post and follow along.
First, we'll be covering Radagast Brown. I'll draw them off. These are Gundabad wags. They will outrun you. These are Roscabel rabbits. I'd like to see them try. So, quickly going over Radagast's profile. Radagast the Brown has the wizard, infantry, and hero keyword. And he's a hero of legend. He's base 150 points. And he has a movement of 6. Fight 5. Strength 4. Defense 5. 1 attack. 3 wounds. And courage 7. He has 3 might, 6 will, and 3 fate. And he starts with a staff of power and a dagger. He can call heroic channeling and heroic defense. And he has 4 war gear options. He can exchange his staff for an eagle for 50 points. He can ride a sleigh for 45 points. He can ride a horse for 10 points. And he can take Sebastian for 5 points. His sleigh has a woodland creature special rule, and it's a standard mount. When you take Sebastian, you get an additional attack in close combat that counts as a fight value 1 and strength 1. And uh, you cannot might Sebastian's rolls. He has two special rules. One is Master of Birds which means he always counts as having a line of sight to any point on the battlefield. And he also gives eagle keyword models within 12 inches resistant to magic. And then his second special rule is one with nature. While Radagast has the infantry keyword, he may move through any difficult terrain without penalty. He also has the stock and scene special rule. And he has six magical powers, panic steed, immobilize, renew, nature's wrath, and aura of dismay. So I just with the master of birds thing, I just kind of realized this because like, I always forget about the the resistance to magic thing. But basically, yeah, when he buys the great eagle, he gets resistance to magic effectively, right? Because he gives it to the mount, which is the eagle, and then the eagle gives it back to him because then they're all one model, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That's actually not bad, huh? Yeah, I, I think we could go into like his war gear options a bit more, but I think. Out of the choices, I've seen him the least on the eagle. So maybe that's kind of why I haven't really noticed he gets that resistant to magic rule. Yeah, I feel like the 50 points and changing the staff for a great eagle, which is worth 100 points in the game, a great eagle. And you have the option to just dismount and have a separate monster, but you're kind of getting the eagle for the monstrous charge on Radagast. I feel like if it was just a straight-up trade, the staff of power for the great eagle then i would probably take it but losing the one will a turn from the staff it doesn't seem like it's worth it on top of another 50 points like i've used it once or twice last edition and it was the same thing and it just didn't feel like he was worth 200 points but that's a really interesting way to think about it so if you dismount right away is a foot radagast with no free will a turn worth 100 points because hmm. i'm thinking that actually might be a pretty viable strategy. Because I was thinking, I don't think he's as good riding the eagle, but if you dismount it into two different profiles, I think that's something you might consider, actually. I don't... I kind of like him on the eagle, honestly. Because if you have him on the eagle, and with Sebastian, because it doesn't say that uh, Sebastian doesn't contribute his die if he's mounted. So even if he's on the eagle, you're still, like, launching a little hedgehog at people, right? So he's got a lot of attacks. The sleigh as well, because the sleigh is base four attack. He would have six attacks on the charge. On the yeah, sleigh, he's does. nasty on the sleigh with okay. uh, Sebastian. Back to Richard's question of whether Radagast without a staff is worth 100 points. 
I don't know what do you guys think because he still has the six will. He could still have Aura of Dismay up and then still cast a few spells. So it's hard to say, right? Um, if I could talk a little bit on it, I just don't think a caster with six will flat in the new game with all the magic resistance around and the, the tools to fight it off, I just don't think he's worth the points uh, dismounted at that point without the one free per turn. I think that's what really saves you in a lot of clutch moments in a game. Yeah, I, I don't think I would dismount him without the staff. But that being said, like he, he still... It's super expensive for what you get, and there's probably better ways to do it. But you still get a monstrous charge, like a monster, right? That's he's got the fight seven that can cast magic to shut it down to stop heroes counter striking back. So you can still do like flash kills with him when he's mounted up like that. And like you said before, he has the resistance to magic. What what I think would be good is um the way people tailor specific lists around a profile. I think that's what you'd have to do with him on the eagle. I could see him maybe at like a low points value if someone wants to get really aggressive. And if he's the leader and you have him on the eagle, he's going to be safe. He could assassinate things. Or if you have a list where he's not the leader, you could just use him as your assassin on eagle and then just throw him off and let the eagle fly around afterward. But I think you have to kind of tailor make the list to make the eagle the most worth it. Yeah, I'd just be really hesitant to take any wizard that doesn't have their staff. If you flub a roll or two, it really starts to damage his ability. But at the same time, like Matt said, if you tailor the whole list around it, then I could see it working. But I really think doing that is a very tricky play to make, and I think it would take a lot of work to really get around that. The sleigh looks so much better. It's um, defense 3, but it's 4 attacks and 4 wounds, and it moves 10. I did use it once last edition, like 3 or 4 years ago, at an all-heroes event, and it, it was really good. But, like, maneuvering the base size around is so hard. <laughs> yeah, that's a point I was going to bring up later. I think I'm not a huge fan of taking the sleigh at all exactly because of that. Um, in a lot of lists, he's just he's going to either get in the way or things are going to get in the way of him. But uh, I'm, not sure the eagle, I'm not sure between the eagle and sleigh, which I'd like more. I think the sleigh is probably a little bit better. But So the sleigh, the cool thing is that it's not like the Con Chariot or the Iron Herald's Chariot where you have to reposition. Technically, you can just spin it around, you know, 180. So you can do that bulk sliding thing into like a battle line. And then, you know, Nature's Wrath as you're going in, Hero Combat. So essentially, you could take out like 10 guys that first turn. That's actually a good point on the Nature's Wrath. <laughs> just by having a base that fat, <laughs> it just extends the range out huge. It's, like, it'll it, cover, it's, like, it's a, a bit cheesy. Yeah. yeah. Imagine before the FAQ when it still was a six-inch bubble around that massive base. So I, I guess, do we agree that Horse might be the best uh, mount option here for 10 points? For, for me and my playing experience, yeah, I, I take him with the Horse and Sebastian every time. Like we talked about, there's ways to run the sleigh. There's probably some intricate ways people um, could run the eagle. I got one comment on that. In the last edition, people used to do that little Gandalf bomber will replenishment thing with him. Um, they would build an army with Gandalf, Radagast, and Bomber and feed him some more will when he had the eagle. But uh, it's just too tough. I think every time you take the horse, you take Sebastian. You know, he's good to go. That's such an expensive combo, though. Especially like locally, sure. you don't play as much like one thousand points as you guys do. No, so, like just just thinking of Gandalf and Radagast, I'm like, holy. <laughs> What's the rest of your list? Hobbits, you know. <laughs> know. Yeah. Okay. Well, we all agree that you basically always take Sebastian, right? Yeah, you, you got him attached at the hip. I mean, at five points, what are you really losing otherwise? 
yeah, I think him with a horse and Sebastian is probably the, and you're not paying the extra, what, 35 some odd points for the other options that have more drawbacks and are difficult to use. To think that a little hedgehog is almost as useful as being a Lord of the West, a high elf noble. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Backstory is really, really interesting. He might was, as well yeah. be the Flame of the West at this point. That was, <laughs> that was the material they cut out from the fourth Hobbit movie. <laughs> yeah, I can see um, I would say that the horse might be the best choice here as well. Like, the sleigh looks really deadly with the four attack space, and you could potentially just munch troops with it, but him not having heroic strike, he caps at fight five, and with such a big base, he could just be surrounded. I don't know. I think it might be tricky to keep him safe. Especially when he's a caster and you want him to um, be free of combat at times. I think for the slay, I've seen it used to great effect when it's an all-hero army. Because in those cases, I think a big base is actually a benefit. Because you, uh, you don't have a lot of models, so the big base will take up a lot more space in the battle line. So I've seen people run it with Radagast and like all eagles. And they usually take Radagast on slay. So I think in that case, it's better than the horse. But in a more standard, like, infantry list, then, yeah, I agree with the horse. Yeah, you're totally right. I was just thinking about somebody running Radagast Alliance at our next event, and uh, he's putting him on the sleigh, and I think you need to because, like you said, he needs to buff himself up to be as tough as the people around him in that type of list, or he's just easy pickings for the enemy, you know? I think it's that simple. I will say, um, too, with bringing up Charles's point, I've had that happen, and I've seen that happen when playing against Radagast on sleigh. You know... One bad heroic move, you get caught, you know, maybe it's late game, you're out of might, they could just take the sleigh out really quick. You get charged by troops with below average strength and they could kill it off. I've personally gotten lucky enough to get some shots on it and kill it off the first turn of a game with my Hobbit list before, just because I had a lot of bows and because the defense is so low. So it's a lot of points, then all of a sudden he's on foot and you just lost your possibly biggest killer in their army list, you know. Does Radagast on sleigh, does he get any impact hits? I don't think so. It's a mount, so you treat it like a, like a cavalry, like a horse. So it's not as useful that way as like a, a condish chariot or anything like that. It can't knock over a cavalry. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. I think you could previously, right, in the last edition? Did uh, it do I think so. Monsters? I think it was last edition? Mount. I, I thought it was. I think, I it, think was. it was just... Those were some uh, really terrifying rabbits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Rustabel Rustabel. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I just wanted to uh, see what you guys thought about his magical powers because they're a little different than some of the typical ones you see for Gandalf or Saruman. Like you see Panic Steed. We've seen like Nature's Wrath and Or of Dismay on other heroes but not wizards. And then also Renew as well. When I think of a wizard, these aren't all of the spells that I'm used to. Panic Steed is surprisingly useful just because I really don't see it very often. And the one time Ian played against me with uh, Radagast and used Panic Steed when I had a Fell Beast, it was the most upsetting situation. Because it goes off on a two, and he's like, yeah, you don't have your Fell Beast anymore. You can send that 50 points to the side of the board. It's it's a pretty interesting mix. It's tough to, to rate, just because I don't think it's really comparable with a lot of other spellcasters. He definitely has a more defensive set of spells. He doesn't have Sorcerer's Blast, and he doesn't have Command which are very common spells that you would cast with Saruman or Gandalf. And like Renew, it's good to cast on like maybe a leader that may have been wounded and you don't want your enemy to score the VP. The Panic Steed is the same. It's good for like casting on big heroes to force them to burn their will. 
And then Aura of Dismay is a very, very good defensive ability. So, yeah, I think his, his spells aren't as offensive, and maybe that's why his base points is cheaper uh, compared to the other two wizards. But yeah, I think not having command is probably the biggest downfall to this uh, set of magical powers. Basically, you guys covered a lot of the points. I think one of the biggest attributes about Radagast, I think he's really underrated. I think you don't see him a lot. And like you guys talked about before, Charles mentioned with his Far Harad, Harad list, and other lists like that I've seen locally. Sometimes people are unprepared what Radagast could bring to the table. And the first time or even a couple times, he is so defensive that if you have an army that's already, you know, either a good shield wall or a heavy shooting army or something that you really got to work to get after. He just makes it that much more difficult. It's almost like a force multiplier type situation. But I think his spells, while very defensive, are still varied enough that he could almost do anything you need him to do. Uh, And realistically, you need to roll higher for Sorcerer's Blast and it's doing the same job besides moving them back and doing a little bit of damage that I I don't think is very necessary all the time. Just like looking at his spells right now, I think he might be more reliable than like... Well, maybe not more reliable than Gandalf, but more reliable than, like, Saruman, at least in, in every matchup you have, just because of, like, the nature's wrath. Because, like, if you come up against a Hobbit list and you have Saruman, you know, your 180-point guy isn't going to do much. But with the nature's wrath, that's going to, like, that, that can help out a lot, right? And then the Aura of Dismay. So I would agree that he is, like, pretty underrated. I think Renew is a really underrated spell. Just the fact that it's not restoring fate. By restoring an instant wound, you can um, gain back a lot of VPs in the late game if he's not your leader. Yeah. And you don't see a lot of renews on other casters in the game as well. I think even if he was your leader, I think you can heal yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Pretty sure, yeah. So it's pretty, uh, yeah, you're right. It's a pretty underrated one. Not bad. Yeah, I like, too, the fact that he's either allying with his own alliance, the Misty Mountains, or uh, other Hobbit armies. I mean, look at the massive heroes that come with his alliance list, you know, if he is running his own alliance. You got, like, Danes out there, bards, and stuff you want to keep alive. So, really beneficial. So, going with our uh, ratings for this profile, Matt, what would you say Radagast lands for you between 0 and 10? So I want to preempt this a little bit with how I'm rating him because him being either in Radagast Alliance or the White Council, he's not going to be thrown in a list like a Gandalf or something. You can't rate him like an Omder where he's in an army list or very easily fitting into an alliance. So I think, though, if you're putting Radagast in your list, you're doing it for a very specific reason. And I think I would give him a nine at doing what you want him to do. I don't think he's rated a nine in terms of taking him with any list in the game. I think no not even close but if you put him into a list you really want he's got everything you need to keep your army safe and then the biggest important thing to me is once your army's defensive once your army's safe you could kind of do what you want with your models i just don't feel like you should fall into the trap of saying i need an offensive wizard to do things to win me games because if that fails you're gonna need something else in your army to step up so yeah i mean i agree with what matt has said but I think the way I'm rating it a bit is just, I guess, more in comparison to the other wizards. And obviously, if he was taken in a peer list that he's in, Radgast Alliance, like, he's a 10 out of 10 for sure. But as an ally, I think you do have to kind of compare against Saruman and Gandalf. I know Ian uh, brought up Saruman, but I think, like, I kind of disagree with what he said earlier about Radgast having more uses. Because I think there's a reason why you see Gandalf and Saruman a lot more. Because I do think that their spells do come in more situations. 
Personally, I think Radagast is a little more niche, but if you build the list the right way, then I think you can really excel. So I think overall, I would say a 7.5. I heard a question, Richard. I guess the way I kind of see it, would you say that Gandalf and Saruman are a little bit more point and click than Radagast? Because that's how I feel, and I feel like that's a lot of the reason you do see him a lot less. Not to say that it's easy to run any wizard. More point what? More like point and click. Like, you know what you're doing with Gandalf and Saruman. You're just blasting stuff. You're mobilizing. You're uh, commanding, you know. Um, whereas Radagast, you really got to think what you want to use him for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he is, um, yeah, a little bit harder to use. And I think also situational, because the way I see it, Panic Steed is one of his main offensive spells, like Alex brought up. But unless you're going up against a Fell Beast or a good good list where there's a lot of mounted heroes, you might not get the same value as if you're facing, like, let's say, a Gothmog's Legion or an Isengard. So you might not get your full value there. But then if you have Gandalf or Saruman, personally, I love Command. There's so many shenanigans you could do with that. And then also, uh, Sorcerer's Blast is not, personally for me, just blasting for the damage. But it's a way to neutralize heroes because you knock everyone to the ground. So in a way, it's kind of a more targeted nature's wrath. Yeah, I've got to uh, agree a lot with what Richard just said. I think that's one of the big things is Radagast is one of those situations where you take the profile and you really need to build around it. You have to have a real defensive game plan because that's where his spells are situated. And because he doesn't have that command, Richard said it's probably my favorite spell just because of all the things you can do with it and the ways you can mess with your opponent's uh, battle line or, or you know interfere with his heroes. <laughs> as opposed to Radagast. All the spells that he has are useful, but you really have to be more careful with how you use them. I'd also be just a little bit worried about him being a hero of legend. I think the second you go to ally him into something else, you've really got to figure out what that other half is. Oftentimes, I wouldn't want him being my leader, so then I would need another hero of legend. You really have to work it around to make that work out. But other than that, like, I like his spells. I like the uniqueness of it because he's not like every other spellcaster. But I also think I would miss the command for sure. Uh, I think on the whole, I give him about an eight. Interesting. So I, I'm happy you brought up the Hero of Legend thing, but I think I kind of disagree with you on that, though. Honestly, I didn't realize until we were doing the uh, the profile reading that, that he was a Hero of Legend. I thought he was... He's yeah, well in the White Council. And... Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. legend in his own land, so... But, yeah, when he's by himself, he's legend, which I think he actually kind of makes a good leader, honestly. Like, the biggest weakness would be, if, like, in the random deployment scenarios, and he just comes on alone, but he'll always be mounted, right? So you should be able to just run away or deploy stuff near him. I don't think that's the worst thing. And, I mean, yeah, if you give him Sebastian and stuff, he's kind of reliable in combat. So he's got heroic defense, which... Yeah, that, that's the other thing. Yeah, he's, even if he does get in and he gets trapped, he can just throw a might point and, and he'll probably live, right? So... I think he actually does make a pretty good leader in that kind of a sense. Like, if you wanted an offensive-ish, or, well, I guess he's more defensive, like a more defensive wizard who can be your leader in, like, I don't know, a Rohan list if you have, like, Thaden and you don't want Thaden to be your leader, take him or something like that, I don't know. But that is an interesting point. And he can lead 18 eagles. True, if you ever yeah. want to do a 2,000-point game. <laughs> That's great now. Now someone is definitely going to run right against Some of the people in our league are going to hear this podcast and be like, yeah, Matt, why aren't we going to 2,000 yet? <laughs> That's true. That's one thing about Radagast. Like other wizards, he is difficult to bring down. 
Uh, one thing I love about him, too, is like we've talked about, I think it's pretty obvious to anybody you take Sebastian. And if he does get charged, he's got two dice. You know, not all the other wizards have that option if you somehow get him caught in trouble. Yeah, and even in um, Contest of Champions, if he's on the horse, or like any of the other mounted options, he can still get kills, right? Even on the horse, three attacks on the charge because of Sebastian, he'll still, still be able to do stuff, right? But yeah, I think my overall rating, I don't know. I want to say an eight, but then like I found it really hard allying in wizards to lists right now, just trying to find the right balance. But he is, I guess, cheaper. Uh, yeah, no, I'll go 7.5. I'll go 7.5 some pretty good points i think even though he's cheaper than the other wizards he's a little bit expensive for someone who's like mostly support mostly defensive because when i think of allying some support in a list i think of kirdan which is like a lot cheaper than him obviously he brings different stuff but i noticed that all of his spells where you target enemies like nature's wrath and panic steed and immobilize the enemy hero can resist it in comparison to Sorceress Blast, where you can set it up in a way where you can knock over an enemy hero without giving them a chance to resist it. Uh, and I think that's a that's a big advantage that Gandalf and Saruman have on him. I see what you're saying, but I think that's not, like, that bad, because it, it sets you up for the late game, right? Like, if they resist the Panic Steed, then that just means they're using up their will. So later in the game, you can try it again or do immobilizes and stuff. Whereas with a blast, it might be more reliable to get them off faster, but then you're waiting for them to like mess up and like set something up in front of their hero mm-hmm. or to go and get that angle. So uh, yeah, positive yeah. negatives, but... Yeah, yeah. I definitely think Radagast can cause damage to big heroes. It's just, um, he doesn't have that Sorceress Blast, which I think with the newest FAQ update became even better. And he's kind of on like the level of a Ringwraith where... They can target heroes and really bring them down, but every time they do it, the other hero can resist. While Sorceress Blast kind of can override that, it's just one of the best spells in the game, and Radgast doesn't have it. So I think he's a little bit expensive for what he does, even though he does have a lot of tricks, and he does have a lot of utility, so I'm probably sitting at like a 7 for him. Yeah, I'll say is probably, I probably, I think, played with Radagast more than anybody here, and I don't think anybody's rating is unfair, honestly. I think as low as 7 is definitely fair. Because uh, he's very much a precision model. You need him in the right list, and you need to use him the right way. So, Okay, let's move on to some army lists for today. So Matt has one 650-point list and one 1,000-point list with Radagast. Why don't you start with a 650-point list and just go through what's in the list and um, let us know what your general battle plan is. Okay, all right. Um, well, the 650-point list is going to be Radagast on Horse and Sebastian. He is a hero of legend, so he's going to have to be the leader if he's using Radagast Alliance, but that doesn't ally properly with the Hobbits. So he's going to be a white council member, making him a hero of valor. The reason I bring this up is because so is Merry and Pippin. So realistically, you can make one of the Hobbits your leader as well. It's not smart if you're playing in contests of champions or certain types of uh, tournaments. I guess the thing is, if you go into a tournament knowing you're not going to need your leader to do damage, um, you could maybe sneak it into like a Mary, and then maybe you have like a better assassin for a scenario like assassination, choosing Radagast. But either one of those could be. So Radagast on horse with Sebastian. I got Mariatic on pony with a shield. He's leading 15 battle and brandy bucks, all with axes, of course. You need the strength upgrade. Peregrine took on pony with shield as well. I have the archers in his warband, all 15 Turkish hunters, uh, because that fight value is necessary, because if hobbits don't win the fights, they're going to die instantly. I got Fatty, of course, classic Fatty. He's leading four regular archers and one sheriff. I have Mayor Will Whitfoot, one of the newer profiles from the Scouring of the Shire book, with five militia. They all have axes as well. 
I don't think you take a militia member without an axe unless you're trying to do some sort of sneaky bash in your list. He's also leading seven sheriffs, filling out his warband as a hero of fortitude. And then the last one is Wholefoot Bracegirdle, the sheriff leader. He's got 12 sheriffs in his warband. So that brings me to um, 65 models, 19 bows and 9 might. So it's mandatory that with every Hobbit list, you play defensive. Everybody likes to laugh and joke about you swarming your opponent, but even when you outnumber them 2 to 1, it's a very finicky list. Literally the goal, in my opinion, of every Hobbit list is just avoiding the enemy at all costs until you can't do it because you need to move, you need to grab objectives, or you do need to get some killing done. Use your stones, use your arrows, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to try a list like this with Radagast. It's for the Orb Dismayed defensive capabilities to help them stick and move and kind of stay away from the enemy, stay alive. Basically, game plan is major defense and uh, archery. So, I really like this list. I mean... You know, you got hobbits that can actually do a bit of damage. You got the several marches. You even got two mounted hobbit heroes. But I guess my thing is that if your strategy is more castling and play defensive, and I know our episode is on Radagast, but do you think that having Gandalf instead of Radagast in this list would be an upgrade just because of the blinding light? Because right now, if you come across any army that outshoots you especially if they're shooting 24 inches then i feel like you could be in a world of trouble if your original strategy is just to kind of stay back and you know shoot them yeah you're absolutely right um i have the sheriffs in there for hitting potential as well you know you're going to need to go on the offensive at some point in every single game you play in this game you're not going to win if you don't attack and do damage what i say gandalf's an upgrade I mean, considering he is in the Shire list, you could write the army list a little bit differently. I think he would be an upgrade. Again, this is a very specific list written for a specific reason. But I think probably, yeah, I think Gandalf would be the better choice. Um, I think mainly the profile's in here because of the fact that we're talking about Radagast today. I think if you were to take Gandalf, you would have to take Gandalf the White because you can't have Gandalf the Grey and Merry and Pippin in the same list. Yeah, you'd have to change the list. Yeah. But I, I see where Richard's coming from. I think mm-hmm. with a Hobbit list, Blinding Light's pretty important. And 65 models is a lot for 650 points, but I feel like they will just die really quick. Here's, here's the point with that, the Blinding Light and then the Shooting War. Um, now that Hobbits were pushed back down to 18-inch bows, it's going to be a struggle period in the Shooting War, first of all. Second of all, with this many models, I've playtested Hobbit lists and ran them in so many tournaments. You're not going to get the models in the bubble for Blinding Light, no matter how hard you try. They're going to be picking people off on the sides no matter what. It's almost useless, actually, to have Blinding Light in this list besides keeping specific models alive. Usually when I'd run it, if I wasn't taking Radagast, if I was taking a more competitive version of it, I'd have Elves in there and I'd have the Blinding Light protecting them. But, you know, the list, the way it's written, I don't think Blinding Light would help it much. Yeah, no, fair points. I mean, I think you did a really good job writing this list. I think... I can't give it top marks just because of the hobbits, essentially. Pure hobbits list, and then you add in a wizard. Like, hobbits just aren't that good anymore, unfortunately. So uh, I'm kind of on the edge of, like, a strong fortitude or, like, a low valor. Because I think it really depends on the matchup. I think anything that is running at you, you're probably, like, a strong valor. But then anything that would outshoot you, you're probably more like a fortitude list. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, I think I'm going to go uh, Fortitude as well. You've included all the right picks for the Hobbit heroes to get the most out of them. Mayor Will with the banner effect, and then Wholefoot for the no negative ones on the sheriffs. They'll essentially be Strength 4 with the Strength 2 Burly. And then you have March as well on 3 of the Hobbits. 
I would like a little more might just because of your low uh, movement, but nine is still solid. I mean, I think 19 bows could still hit pretty hard. You just have to have the right deployment, and uh, I guess you would have to be facing the right opponent. I'm going to give it a strong fortitude. I mean, this kind of list, even this edition, will still make me a little bit nervous because at 650 points, you have 65 models. That is a lot of hobbits. Before Ian talks, I want to let you know, Ian, I don't exactly have max bows. I'm one or two short. Oh, no. So, and then, like, minor hero, for sure. <laughs> I knew Wait, it. why? Why? Is this restricted on, like, your collection, and that's how you, you ended no, up? No, no, I only took one or two out because I just wanted a little bit more hitting power with uh, more axes and more sheriffs in there. You absolutely need every bit of hitting power in this list you could. Yeah, that's true. They do go down. I still think you've got to max them out if you're going to go for it, just because you're going to end up doing a lot of shooting in any game you play, even if it's just by bulk of numbers, like guys who just can't get into the fight, so they'll shoot at stuff. So yeah, got to max out those bows. I'm torn on what to give it, like like everybody else. I'm kind of between like a Fortitude and a Valor too, just because of inherently how the Hobbits work now. I don't know. I, I've only had one game that I can think of in the new edition against the Hobbits, and they're not as scary, but they're still scary. Like, you're still facing a lot of stuff, but I don't know. I'm kind of leaning Fortitude, but I really like all of the, the hero choices because it is going to buff up the line really well. And, like, those sheriffs getting the plus one to wound and then in the banner effect, like, they'll do some damage more than people will expect. I think I'm going to lean to Fortitude for this, but I guess I'd have to see how it would play first. Yeah. In the last edition, Hobbits were definitely probably more powerful than they should have been, especially with the uh, lack of alliance matrix, too. But I'll tell you guys right now, as much as I love my Hobbits, I'd be hard-pressed to find any list in this game now that you can make. I would vote them a Hero of Legend with. You know, I think Hero of Valor is probably their cap in this new edition. Gowering of the Shire was a nice upgrade for them, but it's really difficult to make a Hobbit list that looks scary on all occasions now because of all the nerfs they had. They had around 10 to 15 different things I counted when I looked at what affected their army list in this new edition. And uh, yeah, like I'm totally right there with my own list between Fortitude and Valor probably as well. It's because you didn't take Gandalf with cart. <laughs> that cart oh, though. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to your second list. Alrighty, so um, the background in this list is I wrote something a little bit similar to what I took to an event last year. It was our largest, uh, what you'd probably call local event, despite the fact that we had people from a few different states there. I think like four, roughly. But um, this is a thousand points. We were kind of amplifying the points levels at the end of last year a lot, and it kind of climaxed right before COVID. This was that last big event. Um, so I took Bard the Bowman on horse with armor. Alfred in his warband, and the rest of his warband is simply 17 Lake Town Militia with shield. Going along with him, continuing the Lake Town Survivors part of the list, I've got a Lake Town Captain with shield, I've got four more Lake Town Militia with shield, and then I have seven Lake Town Militia with bows and spears. My first allied part of the list is Legolas on horse from Mirkwood. He's got with him ten Mirkwood elves with a glaive and shield, and then I have five more Mirkwood elves with glaive and bow. I have Radagast on horse with Sebastian allied in. And then I have Gua here, allied in. Just so everybody who's listening is clear, I had um, Radagast from his alliance with this list and Gua here from the Misty Mountains from this. So there's 48 models, 14 might, potential of 17 with Alfred, seven bows from Lake Town, five elf bows, and then I have Bard and Legolas's bows as well. Now this is a shooting list. <laughs> but it's also not max bows. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like, yeah, these bow counts seem a little low. <laughs> <laughs> on the uh, on the militia. Who is the leader? 
Yeah, the the leader I ran last time for the tournament was a little bit different. I did run Radagast as my leader, and uh, he was a solid leader. I put Bard as the leader in this list this time, but honestly, you could still switch it out. So about Bard, I'm, I'm curious why you didn't include the girls so he gets the free hero combats and stuff. Yeah, and that's a funny thing because I hear a lot of people throwing that around, and I don't consider myself a very careful player all the time. I am pretty aggressive <laughs> at times, but um, I find that they become a liability when you're playing high-level players with all the tools and the armies out there. If they get killed, he's going to be it. It's the same as the twins, you know? I don't want to have to chase down that model that kills one of them. Legolas is out there when you're playing against other lists at tournaments. And to be fair, you know, sometimes you just botch rolls. If you're calling heroic combats every turn, you're going to lose one, and you're going to have to burn some might, get him caught out of position. You could lose your horse. I think he's pretty good the way he is, just stacking might on him, the Alfred. And you could save that point to include numbers because... Obviously, including someone like Radagast and Guahir both in this list, my numbers are still pretty low for a thousand. I think it's on the lower end, what I think is acceptable. And um, let's say if I took Guahir or Radagast out of this list and had more troop numbers in there with another, you know, basic hero from one of those two lists, I would include the daughters as my next upgrade, probably. Okay, yeah, I like I've kind of bounced back and forth for them personally whenever I use them. Like I did kind of tend to think the same way as you, though, for most of the time I was running Lake Town, like consistently. I'd just rather prefer to keep them cheaper. And you get more numbers and then just have them buffed up with Alfred. But I found the bigger thing when I was fighting against Richards was the, the fight six was bigger than the hurl combats for me. Because he's a lot harder to pin down with troops. Like if you go up against any kind of elf list, then he's like in a lot of trouble. But then if he has the fight six, then he's a lot more consistent. Yeah, and I think it just comes down to a lot of the positioning. Because like Ian said, I played with uh, Bard with the Daughters a lot last year. And I think maybe out of like, 10 12 games i think maybe the daughters died one maybe two games maximum so it's not as bad as you think if you can protect them well well to be fair though i like legolas hasn't been running around a lot like a ton he's always around but not like a ton at our tournaments and then wizards aren't as common either so those are two things that can really pick him off easier so yeah makes a difference yeah i've seen a little bit of gulavar flying around chicago too so it's good. It's really solid, but I don't know if that's because I'm looking at this with an 800-point kind of list mindset <laughs> that I tend to do. Every time I see a 1,000-point list, I'm like, oh, wow, it's got so it's got this, it's got that, oh, wow, it's, this is great, it's got everything. And they're like, oh, of course, they've got, like, a million points to work with, well, a 1,000 points to work with. But it, it, it is really solid. Like, running the Lake Town Militia in the front and then the Elves behind is, yeah, it's, it's a great combo. It's, it's awesome. The offensive power of being at, like shooting with Bard and Legolas in a turn is just is horrible to enemy heroes if they're exposed at all. I think in one of the games that I used a similar list to this, my opponent put Gothmog in the front rank, and I killed him in one turn just with Legolas and Bard. It just it's dirty. It's gross. <laughs> like with all the might you can throw at it. <laughs> yeah, it's it is it is nasty. It is nasty. And then you've got the big flying monster in there with Guhir. And then you've got Radagast, the nice support wizard. I mean, it is a bit of a shame, actually, that you don't have the command, because that works really well with Gwahir. But, I mean, it's not, like, a huge deal. You can still position things to, like, get the uh, the flash kills. I'm, I think I'm sitting at a Valor, but, like, a high Valor. It's close to Legend, but I kind of want, I don't, uh, it might be a Legend. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing is that you don't have the banner in there. Like, you have the Bard bonus, which is good, but then in the scenarios, there's what, three out of the, the 18 potential ones that have banner for points? 
Yeah, I do want to bring up the point that I, I did write this list for a very specific tournament where the scenarios didn't dictate the banner being victory points. So okay, obviously I'd probably change that. You're correct. The banner is good on Bard, but if I was going to uh, you know, a generic tournament where we're just rolling on the board, yeah, I'd probably look to find a banner in there too. Okay, so with that in mind, then I won't criticize the the banner no banner because you want to keep your models up because you got all the expensive stuff. Okay, it might be a legend. <laughs> it's pretty good. Okay, I'll, I'll go soft legend. I might wish wash by the end uh, when everybody else is done, but we'll see. <laughs> Classic Ian. So the way you've kind of laid out your force is kind of concerning for me. You know how you have all of your shield, Lake Town Militia, and Bard's Warband, and then all your supports and Legolas Warband. I mean, they'll probably start together since you have plenty of might in both warbands if you needed to roll for a deployment. But I just, I tend to like to spread out my spears usually. And then the other thing was um, that you had shields for all your glaives and glaive and bow. I, I don't know how I feel about that because glaives at two points is pretty pricey. So I'm not sure about the glaive and shield kind of build. I've never actually tried it myself. And same as with glaive and bow. If it was me, I, if I might drop like all of the shields and then maybe upgrade a couple of them into uh, Mirkwood Cavalry, just so you have a couple of mounted models. But just like small changes here and there, I do like the multiple threats that you have. A flying monster, you have a wizard, and then you have Bard, which can kind of do a little bit of everything, and he's pretty good in combat as well. So I like the multiple threats, but just the composition a little bit, not how I might build it. 48 models it's a good number if you're running like an elite army but you have a lot of defense five here so i don't know i'm really really torn how this would do at at a tournament and gonna disagree with ian here i i think i'm gonna go with a strong fortitude on on this list i just wanted to bring up one point actually when i did run this list at the last tournament i didn't have the shields on those glaives and I found people um, targeting them a lot. I found people putting a lot of effort into my um, Mirkwood Elves with Glaives. And uh, I just thought putting shields on them would actually be a solid upgrade. I've only played with the list with them with shields on there one time since I used this list. But it was strange. Again, the, like you said, the composition is an issue. It was tough. I tried it out. And, you know, there are maybe some things I'd rearrange or change up in the future. But you could only fit so many models in the list with the way the warbands are capped out, too. So I had the 10 points to put on there, you know, with the shields. But, yeah. The glaives, by the way, though, I will make a comment. I think that's one of my favorite pieces of war gear in the game, if not my favorite. They're just incredible. But no, I totally so understand where you're coming from with the. Yeah. I think a Mirkwood elf with a glaive and a bow is my favorite regular troop in the game, honestly. Bard doesn't have an elven blade. Well, his spear support does, so there you go. It's so dumb, but I love it. Yeah. So I agree a lot with what Charles said. Just, I guess, the individual compositions, like. 17 militia with shield all in one warband just seems a little bit intense for me. And then I personally really, really rate highly the Mirkwood Cav. I actually think they're one of the best Cav in the game. And I don't really count the heroes as filling that role because a lot of the times um, in certain scenarios you want, you know, cavalry to just run on the sides for objective taking and you don't really want to spend like a Legolas or a Radagast to do that kind of stuff, especially earlier on in the game. However, I think your hero choices really, really offset that. And I think the troop composition can be obviously made more efficient, but I think it's a little bit nitpicking because I think um, your heroes would just carry you to victory a lot of the times. Because I played very similar lists and 48 models is okay, especially when you have so much might and so much hitting power. 
So I think this one is a valor from me. Uh, one of the things I will say while we have a pause here is that, yeah, I'd say probably one of the strangest things I do that people aren't used to when they play me is is how I utilize those heroes for my mobility, especially late game on objectives. And sometimes I do swing them away from the army in ways that is uh, probably a problem, but only after I've had enough of that part of the board control that I'm willing to risk that with like a Legolas or even a Radagast when they're too busy with those monstrous threats, you know? Yeah, I think what Richard said is the first big positive that really jumped out at me was the hero selection. I looked at it and I saw Bard, uh, Alfred, so essentially Bardemir at that point, potential for a six might Bard, uh, Lake Down Captain, you know, just solid choice, uh, Legless, Radagast, Guahir. And I was like, this sounds really familiar. This sounds really, really familiar. And then I just remembered all of Richard's lists that have Guahir and a spellcaster. And I'm like, that's, that's what it is. That's exactly what it looks like. Charles definitely has a point with the low defense on the Lake Town Militia. That's an issue that I think when you have a large Lake Town contingent, you're just always going to have to deal with. I think I've referred to them before as like the sawdust of the army. You just fill it. You just, there's tons of it. And they're a really solid unit just as a whole. I don't really know how I feel about the Glaive. Haven't really gotten tons of experience against it. I know it's pretty good, it's, but I feel like it's always a solid choice just because of the number of things that it can do. Not sure it's the most efficient on the Bowman, you know, but that's a, a minor change of how you use about 10 points in a 1,000-point list, so it's not huge. I'm with Richard on this one. I, I really like Elven Cavalry in general. I feel like you definitely need some there. That's the one thing that I can really say that this list is missing is just the Cavalry. I really like it. I'm probably going to go with Richard on this one. Go low Valor. I'm so tempted to drop my score down. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I'm conflicted. Still conflicted. It's okay. You and Charles balance each other out. It still averages out to there a you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll leave it then. <laughs> Because, yeah, the, the no cav, like, I mean, like, warrior cavalry is is an issue. And then, no, nah, it's still pretty good. I, I'd say the issue with the low defense on the troops is one thing. But the hero selection, I think Richard already said this, but the hero selection really helps. Because the number of times where I see a list like this when I come up against it, and I'm like, oh, that's a lot of lower defense. I think I can take that. That's not terrible. And then the hero selection just comes out and dominates the game. And you're like, well, that's cool. He's got like 40 Lake Town Militia, but the heroes are ripping me apart all game long. Sometimes it's a matter of the heroes really making up for that kind of thing. And I think the hero selection in this one really does. Okay, let's move on to the open topic of today. So the open topic for today is army bonuses and alliances and just kind of your thought process to when you're making these decisions on how to build your army and which alliances you select. We'll be covering historical alliances first. So in a historical alliance, I know that people often will keep their armies green and keep uh, their army bonuses in an alliance because of thematic reasons. If they want to recreate a scene from the book or the movies and um, thematically it just makes more sense. 
but what are you guys' thoughts on uh, competitive reasons for keeping an army bonus as opposed to allying something in your list that would break the army bonus? So just as like a loose statement, I would say that if the army bonus is tied to a specific hero, like the Merkud one or like the uh, Erebor one or the Necromancer one, in that kind of a situation, you're probably going to be hurting yourself by losing the Ari bonus more than what you gain from allying in. You have to go for something really kind of funky to make it work or something like a very specific thing in mind to make it to get it to work. Like in uh, episode one, when I had Thranduil in an army that wasn't pure, like that kind of a thing. So th that's definitely important to keep in mind. Yeah, and the army with the bonus that you want to keep Especially when they're like a big chunk of your models or the majority of your army, right? Because sometimes an alliance is not an even split. You'll have one alliance, which is just one warband. And then you might not care if you have the bonus for that, just that one warband, right? So if it's like most of your army or if you're doing like a fiefdoms with Minas Tirith and most of your army is fiefdoms, then you might not want to lose the bonus because the fiefdoms army bonus relies on synergies between heroes in that list. But if your list was mostly Minas Tirith and a little bit of fiefdoms, then I would argue that it might be more okay to break the army bonus. I mean, yeah, I think you're totally right on that one and a combination of uh, both of what you guys just said. I think you guys talked about it in another episode. A lot of the Hobbit army bonuses not only work well together, they're really easy to use together. You know, if you have Azog's Legion and the uh, Dark Powers of Dol Guldur, those are two extremely powerful bonuses that are just so easy to ally together. Um, you know, and then the fiefdoms, it, you just look at the fiefdoms list and see those asterisk mark bonuses, and you're like, why would I give that up? It's so good. You know, the fight value is there with the army, the defense is there, you have big heroes, you have small heroes for good point values. I think the ease of use of the alliances is a no-brainer when keeping some of the green ones and keeping their army bonuses as well. Yeah, I find that um, elves are usually like one of the ones that you would tend to ally in a yellow communion alliance just because they're pretty much allies with everyone. So you get the ease of allying. And then also, I don't find any of them except for the Mirkwood one very, very vital to list building. So like the Rivendell one, the boost to shooting, it's okay, but you're not going to build your strategy around it. And then the Lothorian resistant to magic, um, same thing. Evil, you don't have as many allying choices, but I think Moria is kind of like the elves of the evil side. They can yellow alliance with pretty much anyone, and I think their army bonus is not that essential as well. So, Yeah, because the Moria's army bonus is focused around like a goblin horde, right? So if your main strategy is not to have a ton of goblins and do this around, then you definitely can lose the bonus. And similarly with the Mordor bonus. If you're not going for like a mostly Mordor battle line, then you can kind of give up that alliance as well. If you want to just ally in a couple of Mordor heroes, because we all know there are heroes in the Mordor list that uh, you might kind of want to cherry pick and add to your army. So like that one's probably okay too. And then there are situations where it's like a really hard decision to make if it's worth breaking. For example, like I played a lot of Far Harad last year and their army bonus is very, very good. It basically negates one of the army's weaknesses, which is courage. And I don't know, it's it's always like no-brainer to just ally with Serpent Horde because that's their only historical alliance and you want to keep the army bonus, right? So that's always the first alliance you want to go to. 
But then I've seen people allying Farhad with Mordor and putting them into like other evil lists, which you lose the bonus. And, you know, whenever I see a list like that pop up, I just, it makes me really question whether that was a good move, because I think that army bonus is so good. Yeah, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from um, when you do that, because you have such a drop off in losing your bonus, you kind of have to make it up with something else. I think in a similar vein for a good side, Arnor, I think Ian has experience with some of this, like their courage is kind of their weakness because they're so efficient troop wise. <laughs> But then if you could ally in with any hero with Aura of Command, then at that point, it's like, who cares? I was just about to bring that up. So the Arnor army bonuses is that if any like Arnor keyword guys are within six inches of Arvadui, they automatically pass courage tests. So if, for example, you just ally into Rivendell and grab Kirdan, that's the same thing with his Aura of Command. So then you don't care if you're losing your army bonus because you're, you're, you're getting it somewhere else essentially right so there are ways you can build lists where you don't actually really lose that much even though you are losing the iron bonus kind of just shifts to a different kind of thing yeah that's a good show because i was going to move on to this point next but people who ally in single drop heroes for the utility and in your example arnor is losing their army bonus but you're getting something to replace it and also give it another set of utility on top of that by like your example of your nova list adding in kirdan you're providing Aura of Dismay and Blinding Light. The same can be said for like Minas Tirith, for example. If you break that army bonus and then you're taking mostly Bodyguard anyway, you know, you don't mind losing the army bonus. Or if you're allying like a Aura of Command as well, then it feels okay. Yeah, I was actually going to say, um, since we just talked about my list, a pretty valid replacement for Radagast would just be Saruman the White. And you know, if you write the list a little bit differently with different Hobbit allies, you're breaking the army bonus, but Lake Town's courage is so poor that uh, having him around with the Aura of Command, you know, you still have the wizard to do all those basic tricks you need to do with the wizard. And uh, you now have like these fearless six point Lake Town dorks and they're just running around charging anything you need them to. It's it's excellent. And it's I'd be willing to cut that banner and have to make sure my Lake Town guys are, you know, that much more useful in every turn of the game. One of our favorite alliances on this podcast is Boromir of Gondor. And uh, we've seen it quite a few times throughout the episodes where um, he would just be included in a list. And typically that would be a convenient alliance. It would typically break the army bonus. But it's just coincidence that he's from the fellowship list where you can't use an army bonus anyway if you don't have Frodo. Usually Bormir brings enough might and utility and heroic actions that you can kind of offset losing the army bonus. I know Richard and Ian probably are the two people here that ally him in the most, so they could probably speak on that a little more. He usually brings enough additions to the list where um, it seems okay to uh, lose your army bonus. Yeah, it just kind of gets into like the, the trade-offs thing we kind of mentioned earlier, is like what you're losing versus what you're gaining. And like in the case of Boromir, getting the six might is great. Getting another hitter is great. And getting the fact that he has March too, so he's a good way to get March into your list if you don't want to shell out the points for a captain or something like that, right? So it's just there's so much utility for that. And then the other thing is, is if you're going to be allying in any way and losing your bonus, then you might consider some kind of more outlandish kind of drops. Yeah, I think this might be um, kind of a separate topic, but since we brought up Boromir of Gondor, um, <laughs> I think you have to kind of also consider with these allies whether it's like a one-drop ally or an ally bringing in like several other troops 
a lot of the times why Boromir of Gondor is so good is he's not the reason why I go into a convenient or even red alliance, but I've already chosen to go down that route and he's cheap enough as a one drop to later add in. So I think that's that's what makes him kind of a really, really easy uh, addition. Yeah. And well, the other thing is, is they'll always be useful, right? If you're adding something in that's going to like have a use in every game, then that's that's just a good thing, right? So yeah. talk about Boromir, or in Matt's case, in his list today, uh, a single drop wizard in both of his lists. There's concern, there's downsides for that when you're allying a single hero from a faction for utility. They can't lead any warriors, so in like Maelstrom of Battle deployment scenarios, there's a chance that they might not start with your army, or if they do, you would be burning a chunk of your might to do it. Um, is that? Do you think about that a lot when you decide to ally in single drop heroes? Or is this something that is kind of just not a big deal because it's not going to be the majority of your games? I think like if you talk to SBG groups and players around the world, you always want to build for the correct tournament. You know, if you have somebody who's hosting your next event and you know exactly what scenarios you're going to be playing, it's an obvious choice sometimes. If you know you're playing a few scenarios and there's no Maelstrom, you don't need to worry about it at all. If you're just playing out of the 18, that it's that simple. You know, I think the simple choice with the army I talked about with the Hobbit Alliance today would be just be using Gandalf with Lake Town. You know, I don't need to include Radagast. I don't need to break the alliance. I don't need to include Gwai here. But like Richard talked about, if you break it already, it's like, eh. So I have Gwai here and Radagast in there because Gwai here changes the complexity of the entire battlefield because you got a 12-inch flying monster that could one-shot a lot of stuff off the board. So at that point, it doesn't even matter that some of the army bonuses are broken because it's changed so much. I knew there's a Maelstrom scenario, but I know both those heroes that are drops at three points of might as well. So, Yeah, but the thought of you having in your 1,000-point list two, like Radagast and Guahir being single drop, it's it's like on a bad day, they both roll like a two when they come on. That's just my thinking. No, no, I, I totally uh, agree with you. And we talked about this a little bit before the podcast. It's one of those risks that just me as a player and a list builder, I guess I was willing to take. In that tournament, I did end up going 3-0, but the most difficult game was actually the Maelstrom scenario for a couple reasons, but um, the deployment was poor enough that Radagast and Guahir were pretty far from the bulk of my list, actually. Um, they ended up, from my perspective, on the bottom right side of the board. Bard ended up on the top, and uh, Legolas's Warband ended up on the bottom left. It was really the guy's Mordor catapult that did a lot of work in my army, so that was the main issue, but... I didn't actually have to burn much might with them because of the fact that he deployed second. So I didn't know where he was going to be. But um, it's it's definitely a risk. It's a risk some people just don't want to take. It's a risk other people are willing to take. But yeah, you know, when you're going to the tournament, you're like, oh my God, what if this happens? But in Maelstrom, you might just roll four ones in a row, two to deploy. So it's just one of those things, you know, that's just one of those conditions. I don't think it's as bad as maybe you're making it out to be because Guahir is a 12-inch fly and then Radagast is on horse. So usually, even if you're deployed across the map, it's not like they won't be able to make it back and connect with your forces. So I actually don't mind these one-drop mounted heroes. I think it's another reason why you wouldn't one-drop a foot hero and you, you never see that. And another reason why Celeborn is not... Galadriel Lady of Light, baby. She's everywhere. She's the exception to the rule. <laughs> I was yeah, waiting yeah. for that hero to come up. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot. She could only do a list of Boromir of Gondors and Lady of Lights only. Oh. <laughs> Game over. If we ever have a 240-point tournament, I know exactly what I'm taking. <laughs> 
yeah, you know, Ian, and habits. <laughs> Ian, I think out of all of us, you use Lady of Light by far the most. Do you think about the fact that she's on foot and being a single drop? Like, does that ever, is that a big issue for you? I, it is uh, annoying and unfortunate, but that's the only downsides that that profile has in, in my mind. It's one of those things where it's like, no matter what army I come up against, she's always going to have some kind of use, be it like the blinding light, the magic resistance, or just as another fight six, three attack hero who can strike. Like There's, there's always something she can do. It kind of just comes down to like, do I like this army bonus enough? And I think it's like, is there something specifically I'm trying to do with it? If not, then toss her in. But in that case, I think the biggest thing is the magic resistance for me personally. I'm probably traumatized from last edition where big heroes just get shut down immediately and that's why nobody ever took them. <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely doesn't help. <laughs> that's funny you brought her up though. You know, Radagast and Horse and Guahir flying, like Richard said, I mean, they ended up flying through the middle of the board as soon as they got free of some wargs that took much longer to kill than they should have. But uh, I did consider Lady of Light in that list, but I was like, man, if she's just going to get caught out there in her pajamas running six inches per turn, it's going to take a long time to get anywhere, you know? So that that is the reason I didn't take her. She'd definitely be useful in a lot of lists, though. Like, the profile's excellent, but definitely on foot would be terrifying if you got a really bad deployment. Ah, I mean, she's got, uh, ah, what's it called, the terror bubble thingy? Instill fear? You know, she just gets surrounded and then just goes, you go all over there, you go over there, I'm running through. She turns green. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. just like for the, the single drop heroes thing in general in Maelstrom games, I'm. it doesn't bug me that much because I, like it's unfortunate, it's annoying, it's something you have to deal with, but I don't think it's something that would necessarily stop you from taking that kind of uh, an alliance or dropping in a hero like that just because it depends on how you deploy. Like whenever I have a hero like that and that kind of a thing, okay, okay, or just like a weak warband with like a shaman or like Kyrdan by himself, okay, I'll deploy this one first. And wherever he goes, that's where my army's going to come on. So you're going to have to spend more might, but you're going to probably be spending might in that scenario anyway, so whatever. Yeah, in, in games where it's not Maelstrom about deployment, it's, it's good to have single drops. Because if you want to see where your opponent deploys first, you just put down one model, right? Of course, you can do that without breaking your army bonus. You could do that in a pure list too, but... It's just a small advantage that you can have in, in the rest of the scenario pack where you have standard deployment. Okay, now to circle back from our deviation <laughs> of army bonuses. <laughs> just find it really funny that like we started off talking about army bonuses and then we just ended up talking about Boromir and Galadriel <laughs> again. <laughs> every time. Every time. I think it's important, though, because it brings up a huge utility point to the game. You know, like, those models are huge for whoever is using them in whatever way. It makes it worth, you know, dropping the bonus sometimes or not. Those are just, I think, perfect examples of why you would do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, we might as well bring up the Spider Queen as well. Like, let's not leave oh, her out of it. True. <laughs> true, 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 true. I just, like, I, I think in general, though, for, for army bonuses, it kind of comes down to how you personally rate them. A lot of the time, like if this is one that you just don't give a damn about, then you go nuts, ally with whatever you want. If it's something you really value, then you're not going to want to, right? So there's definitely personal bias in there. But yeah, there, there are ones where it's like, oh, I really don't care. Like the, the Rivendell one, like if I have it, it's kind of nice. It's not, it's not an obstacle. Whereas like the, the sorry, army of Thror, that one's tied directly to Thror, right? So if I'm going to ally that, 
in something that's not green, I'm probably not going to take Thor. I'll just take Thrain instead or something like that, right? Yeah. We haven't talked about impossible alliances yet, but I think it's also true for impossible alliances, but to like a greater degree. Because to write an impossible alliance list, it has to be worth your while losing the army bonus in addition to the penalties with the impossible alliance. So I think when you go to a tournament that allows impossible alliances and you see a red list, there's probably a really specific reason why they decided to build their list that way because there are quite a few um, downsides. I, I don't know if I've ever seen one run. I've never used an impossible alliance one that I can think of. The negatives are pretty big. And then if you are going to do an impossible list, I think you probably only want to do a single drop because of the restrictions, right? Because you, you can get fully broken if half of that separate faction dies, right? No, it's okay to bring two guys because then it's or, the same break yeah, point. Two guys, yeah. But like, that's the thing is like, I wouldn't want to split it like 50-50. Huge deficit then in that way. So I, I don't know. I, can you guys think of any like good examples where you'd want to do an impossible alliance? I mean, I've heard Devin, and I think early on last year, I believe, he was running some list with Aragorn, Elisar, and then Elendil, and then like maybe Bormir or something. And then I think Charles might have played him, but I think the idea was that one of his big heroes would be able to move second, even if he heroic moved. So like if he heroic moved with like, let's say, Elisar, most of his Minas Tirith moved forward, but then his Elendil would be going after the opponent has already countercharged. So he gets to move first and third. So you kind of have a small tactical advantage there as well. Yeah, I believe when I played that red alliance list, Elendil was a single drop, so he didn't have to worry about the extra breaking penalty. And then he didn't take the banner on Boromir, so he didn't have to worry about Elendil not using Boromir's banner. And then I think, yeah, he just negated all the impossible alliance penalties that way and just got the benefit of being able to move second. But it's like, it's really specific and it's really situational. And I think the person who is writing the list needs to plan ahead and know what they're doing. But I can see there being like a weird kind of synergy with red alliances. Yeah, I think that's a really solid point. I was actually going to bring up the last alliance list as well because uh, Numenor doesn't really ally with anything well, you know, except for... Uh... High elves, and I was thinking to myself, you know, before the COVID pandemic happened and everything, writing lists, theorizing, and we were still at the 1,000 points level. You know, there's a lot you could fit in there, obviously. So I was thinking of what to do with Numenor. Can I get a caster in there? And none of the casters could legally really ally in besides, like, you know, Kyrdon with high elves. I think that, like, you go, and then I could go in the middle, and he could finalize. He kind of bookends the turn, and I think that's that's an excellent idea. I've been trying to theorize what lists would be good where you want to have heroics in your front line, you know, tie up the enemy and then put your spear supports where you want because they don't really matter as long as they're not getting to your spear supports. I think the last alliance, you know, the list you brought up that Devin had, and I was trying to think what else, those lists like that would be good where you have a, a significant difference in your two factions. Ian brought up the point about not having troops 50-50, and uh, yeah, it seems scary, but I also, I'm intrigued by it. I'd like to try it, but, you know, this year with um, not being able to play as much, even for us over here, I haven't got to the point where I wanted to try Impossible Alliances because there's so much stuff out there that I still want to try. So I, I actually just looked at Balin's profile again and because I, I thought he just like were not allowed to ally, but it just says he becomes impossible allies with everybody else. So now I'm thinking 
that might be somebody I might try and <laughs> I would try and run an impossible alliance with. Because he actually he's a really really solid profile. He's got all of our favorite heroic actions. He can lead eighteen dwarves. He's got the priority reroll, which is handy. So I don't know, but with the impossible alliance restrictions, the the things that you get. Does that mean that, like, if he called a heroic march, other models from your allied faction wouldn't be able to use it? They can't respond to the heroics unless they're in the same army list. It's all heroics, not just... Yeah, it's all heroics. Oh. So heroic combat as well. Damn, okay. I wasn't sure if it was that or Frustrating, just... yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Never mind. I think you really have to have something in your head if you want to run an impossible alliance. And I mean, I think the last Articon winner in uh, 2019 was also a Red Alliance, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was um, the Goblin Town, Angmar, uh, Spider Queen. Yeah. yeah. Filthy. Filthy. <laughs> Even I think it's disgusting. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah, because was that, was that the one with the shade in there? Yeah. Before the nerf. But... Before the change. Yeah. Yeah. Back then, uh, they could still work with other factions. That's a good example of some bonuses you don't really care to drop either. Like playing pure Goblin Town this year, I didn't find the bonus to be anything special whatsoever. So when you play Goblin Town, would you would you ally in to break the bonus? So if I'm playing pure Goblin Town, I think it's really a toss-up, depending on you as a person in your playstyle, because it all your goblins are four points, you know? It's like, you could just keep allying so many heroes, you could make more room for guys and more warbands. I don't think adding the six per warband even does anything. I ran a 500-point Goblin Town list earlier this year with like 52 models. And uh, I still had space, I think. I don't think I even filled the warbands because I had Goblin King, Grinna, Golem, um, a Captain, the Scribe, you know, and I think I still had, I don't know, or maybe I did fill it up, but I, I didn't need anything else, you know. I don't really know what you'd want to ally with Goblin Town because they're so good. And even if you buff the numbers, you could throw in some mercenaries and stuff. Maybe like a Hunter Orc with a Warhorn. Yeah. If, if it's important to you, but at 500 points, maybe not. Yeah, 500 points, I was lucky enough to get past it. I played one game against the Army of the Dead, and that was horrific. But if you do the math on Courage checks, I had so many models that enough could just, you know, use their chittering hordes and spear support so that I could still double and triple them up in combat. Poor guy had, like, 16 models or something like that. So even with 20 failed Courage checks, I still, like, had them 2 to 1. But, yeah, I mean, that's a significant upgrade is the Warhorn. Yeah, it's, it's tough to say, you know. I think um, one thing we uh, kind of haven't touched upon, allying historical alliance versus like a, a convenient or a impossible alliances having to have a hero of valor in both lists and both armies instead of just a hero of fortitude so sometimes when you're min maxing and trying to build the most efficient list you're kind of forced to take like certain heroes that you might not want to i know in my uh, 1,000 point mishmash, like Lothlorien, Minas Tirith, Fiefdoms, Gwaihir list, <laughs> um, I was kind of forced to take Faramir, or I could also consider her in. But those are kind of my two big choices because I wanted a Minas Tirith contingent. Whereas if I had like a historical alliance, there's so many more heroes in Minas Tirith that I could have access to that are really, really good. So, you know, I, I kind of limit my options and hero choices as well. So. It, you kind of have to put that into the consideration as well. Alexander, I know that uh, most of the time you play pure lists, but last Nova in 2019, you took a convenient alliance to Nova, right? To the GT? Yeah, yeah. We don't talk about um, that anymore. No, we don't. We don't talk about that. Alex, so what What was the list allied with that you brought to Nova that you're talking about? It was Durin, 
hearth guard, other sort of dwarf warriors, and then Kirdan and Welpile. Yeah, I find it really tough. Like in your case, you're allying two elite armies. I find a lot of the alliances I do, that's what's tricky, is like, you want to balance this out. I'm losing my army bonus, and I'm taking some some lower quality troops, because even a list that's just uh, pure, if you will, the Helm's Deep Defense Force, if you're not going with all Royal Guard, you got Rohan in there, but you have the elves that you would traditionally ally in any other list, you know, as well. I tend to run a lot of lists like that. I have my Lake Town in front, I got my Rohan guys in front. Even with the last alliance, Numenor is great, but they're not as good as High Elves, so it's another, like, who do you have in front sort of thing. But, you know, High Elves and Khazad Doom, that's tough. You're breaking your bonus, and you have two elite factions with tons of units that cost a lot of points. I think something like a Mirkwood with Khazad Doom is what I'd do if I'd have to ally that in or something. No, you know, oftentimes it being a historical alliance or it being a pure army is mainly because I only own three armies. So that kind of limits what I'm going to play, mostly pure armies. But I think there are definitely a few army bonuses that you don't want to lose. I've learned that by giving them up and then finding out afterwards why I shouldn't do that. So you look at what your army is missing and what another army can bring to it. You decide at that point that the army bonus is worth giving up because what you're going to bring into the army will make up for weaknesses. Oftentimes I play pure Kingdom of Khazad-dûm. They have a really good army bonus. And the reason I play pure with them a lot is just because their alliance matrix isn't great. And if I want to do a convenient alliance, then it's a little bit of really working at it to get to work. Like Richard said, you've got to pick two heroes of valor, essentially. It becomes expensive, and then it becomes inefficient. It's a little bit tough. Yeah, I think Kaz's Doom has one of the best bonuses in the game. I think it would be very hard to find a reason to ally to, and give that up. It's a really tough army bonus to lose. Something I wanted to bring up. It's kind of like, because of the Valor thing, some lists end up being, like, points locked. Or, like, units in that list just get points locked. You, like, you can't get access to it. Before, my 600-point Arnor list was basically my 500-point one, and then I just ally in Kirdan, right? Super easy. But now, you can't do that. Now I have to pay an extra 170 points to get a Hero of Valor in that list. And that's the cheapest option. So you kind of, it kind of restricts you a lot more because of the Valor thing. But then it also, like, that makes other lists really good. Fiefdom's heroes are really good now because there's so many of them that are like they can bring in like cheap troops and like the heroes are cheap as well so going off ian's point and richard about hero valor being harder to ally i remember um you know back in the old days we would just have people ally in like a lake town captain with like alfred and 11 lake town militia just to boost numbers or for evil side just throwing in like a mercenary captain in like any evil list with 12 mercenaries and just getting that utility so easily now it's because of the hero of valor restriction um, you can't do that now for lake town you have to ally in gandalf or a bard so it kind of changes the way you build lists pretty pretty dramatically I think there's a few armies like that out there, but it's one of those situations where I look at it and just go, like, Kazadoom, most of the time I look at it and just kind of go, I think this is just going to be a forever pure army for me. Okay, that was our discussion on army bonuses and alliances. Thank you all for listening, and thanks, Matt, for coming on the show. Yeah, um, thanks for inviting me. Look forward to the next episode of Into the West. Into the West.